a day is defined as a 24-hour period of time that begins at midnight and ends a moment beforehand, while only containing 86,400 seconds, or 1,440 minutes. It's astounding, really, how much can happen in one solitary day. In fact, there are moments when everyone alive in that moment, that moment in time, understands intrinsically the effect the events of that day will carry with it forever. Let me give you two examples. While largely resistant to the idea of sending our boys into yet another global conflict, December 7th, 1941, would become known as a day, a date, that would live in infamy. The American naval base, located on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, was suddenly attacked without any provocation by Imperial Japan, and every citizen listening to the news reports on their radios that night knew the events of that day would result in the United States joining World War II. If you were at least in middle school for the turn of the millennia, you not only vividly remember the scary events of September 11th, 2001, when 19 terrorists turned passenger jets filled with people into Scud missiles, but you knew 9-11 had changed the world forever. Personally, as an 18-year-old Bible student, Bible college student, living 2,800 miles away from home, the events of that day manifested in Jesus placing a call on my life to serve His bride, the church. Well, there are days when everyone is instantly aware that what they just witnessed was going to carry with it long-lasting effects. There are, to be fair, other moments when the true significance of a particular day is only recognized with the benefits of hindsight. It's recognized after the fact. For example, on June 28, 1914, an Austrian archduke, by the name of Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated by a 19-year-old Serbian. On that day, not a single soul could have ever imagined that by summer's end, the entire planet would plunge into a four-year world war that would result in much of the devastation of the continent of Europe and the deaths of more than 20 million people. Let me give you another date that changed the world forever you might not be aware of. That is the date October 29th, 1969. That's true, a lot of things happened in the 60s. But this date in particular still carries a major effect uh, on all of us. You see, on a tepid fall afternoon, the first ever node-to-node communication between a computer located at UCLA and one at Stanford Research Institute proved successful. While exciting, no one could have ever imagined that just two letters... L-O, which was really meant to spell login until the whole system crash, would effectively lay the groundwork for what would become known as the World Wide Web, central to our global economy and social community. On 10-29-69, the internet was born. I bring all of this up because today, Palm Sunday, what this day is designed to commemorate is another one of these monumental days in history. The day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
Not only was the day significant, but it initiated what would be the most consequential week since creation. What's interesting about Palm Sunday, though, is that virtually no one who witnessed the events of that day had any, any true understanding as to what exactly was happening. Palm Sunday is, in a lot of ways, a day completely misunderstood. Now this morning, we're going to begin by reading John's account of the events of this day, recorded in, in John chapter 12. But then we're going to harmonize John's record with kind of a ton of additional details provided in what's known as the Synoptic Gospels. That's the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then at the end, we're going to spend our last few minutes looking at the reaction of what happened that day in order to illustrate how everyone missed the significance. In turn, it's my goal, the plan for this morning, is that by the end of our study, you'll not only understand why this day was of, of, was of such incredible importance, importance to God's plan, not just for the ages, but for you and I, but I hope you realize that it's, it's a significant day for may, many of the reasons you might not have expected or have thought. Again, this is one of those mornings where C316.tv and the sermon notes will come to your benefit because in harmonizing uh, the accounts, we're not going to jump all around. I've just done this in advance, put it in the notes, and so you can kind of follow along. Let's begin, though, with John's account. John 12, beginning with verse 12, we read that the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now for a measure of context, chapter 12 of John's Gospel begins by setting up an important timeline. In verse 1 of this chapter, John writes that six days before Passover, Jesus came, to Jerusalem from Bethany, from an area known as Ephraim. Not only does this let us know that the, the feast that everyone has gathered for is the Feast of Passover, but verse 12 places the scene, the triumphal entry of Jesus, five days before Passover, which is why we call it Palm Sunday, because it was a Sunday. Verse 14 of John 12, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, and he quotes now from Zechariah 9, verse 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In verse 16, John, he does something he, he often does through his gospel. He adds a little commentary, which should clue you into the fact that no one in that day understood what was really happening, that it was all lost in the moment. John tells us, he says that the disciples, including himself, did not understand these things at first, but... When Jesus was glorified, speaking of his resurrection, then they remembered that these things were written about Jesus and that he had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness for this reason. The people also met Jesus because they had heard the things that he had done, this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, so this was kind of the conclusion to the day, the triumphal entry of Jesus, their conclusion is that they were accomplishing nothing, trying to deter the popularity of Jesus, acknowledging, and it's a pretty radical statement, that the world has gone after him. Now, it's true that John's account of this event is basically a skeleton. There's not, not a whole lot to it. So let's add some flesh to the bones by harmonizing what you'll find in Matthew 21, 
Mark 11 and Luke 19. What, what makes this day kind of interesting is that it is of the few recorded by all four gospel authors. And so we'll kind of dive into this and, and just kind of add some detail. Harmonizing. We read that when they had drawn near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage from the town of Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And kind of pause there. This is, this is important. The crew traveling with Jesus. Again, we get the they. So as you're imagining the scene, who's with Jesus? Well, there's some notable characters. The crew would have included, no doubt, the 12 apostles, the A-team. You know, you got Peter and James and John. You got Judas Iscariot, Simon the Zealot. I mean, it's a motley mob. With them, you have two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother, Lazarus, who's recently been raised from the dead himself. They're, they're also with Jesus. They're part of this crew. You would also have Mary, Jesus' mom. She would be there. Mary Magdalene, also present. Uh, one of the characters that, that I love that would be with this crew is a guy by the name of, of Bartimaeus, who just moments before we get into the text, as they're making their way through Jericho, he's a blind man, been blind from birth, and he's crying out. He hears that Jesus is coming. He's crying out, you know, save me. And Jesus does. Jesus heals him of his blindness. And Jesus tells him to go his way. But the text then says that Bartimaeus came with Jesus. So Bartimaeus, formerly blind Bartimaeus, is also in this crew making his way. Amongst a whole crowd, probably, coming from the Judean wilderness, from the Jordan River Valley, coming down even from the Galilee. Now, regarding the reference here, because we have a few towns that are important, and, and therefore the route that Jesus in this this Mary, Mary band, are taking into the holy city, uh, we know that during this entire week of Passover, that Jesus would spend a lot of time in Jerusalem, that's true, but he would lodge, he would reside in Bethany, which is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home was. So that's where he would stay. So every morning he would leave Bethany, come into the city, and every evening he would leave the city and come back to Bethany. So this is kind of the progression. Bethany, think of it as a small suburb, about two miles outside of the city, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. It's a wealthy town, occupied mostly by priests. So Jesus here, he leaves Bethany, and he's making his way over the Mount of Olives, down into the city. From Bethany, he would reach, according to our text, and geography would confirm, he would reach Bethpage, another really small town. He's still heading west, western slope of the Mount of Olives. But we read that before he gets to the pinnacle, that he sends two of his disciples. So he's making his journey. He stops, and he sends two disciples. Now, we know these disciples are Peter and John. And he says to them, he gives them a really bizarre instruction. He says, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, immediately you will find a donkey tied up. Now, in the Greek language, this word donkey would, would apply to a female adult donkey. And with her, you'd find a colt, which would be the younger male donkey, likely a child. We're f we found in the gospel records that this colt that's with her, the female, would, would be of the such that no one has ever ridden him. No one had ever sat on him. Jesus says, loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks, well, why are you doing this? You'll say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And so Peter and John, they go and they do as Jesus commanded. They went their way. They found the colt tied by the door outside the street, just like Jesus had said, so they loosed it. But the owners, we're told, 
stood there and they're like, bro, what are you doing? Like you're stealing our donkey. And so Peter and John, they spoke to them as Jesus had said, and so they let them go. Now, now like John's gospel, that particular exchange is kind of so bizarre, right? It, it's so odd that in addition to John, who was there, because John, John stole the donkey, so John puts it in his narrative on the record for all to know, I was just doing as Jesus said. Like I wasn't stealing someone's donkey. And Matthew confirms this. He kind of backs it up, including the quote saying like, this was all prophetic. This was all designed. Uh, likely the owners knew of the situation. Matthew also quotes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. He says that all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them, and they set Jesus on the colt. So the smaller of the two. Now John mentions how word had already begun to spread. The rumor mill began to churn amongst the pilgrims already in Jerusalem that Jesus was coming to the city. So word starts spreading. There's an entourage. There's another wave of pilgrims. Jesus is in this crew. And the buzz, I mean, it's kicking. People, John says, start flooding out of the city, probably the eastern gate, to catch sight of Jesus and this crew. In response to the news, we're given in the other accounts kind of a more complete picture of what all of this really looked like. Let, let me read it for you again, harmonizing. A very great multitude, so they all rush out, began to spread their clothes on the road, their tunics. Others cut down branches from the trees, spread them on the road. It's John that gives us the detail that, that others were cutting down palm branches. We'll get to that in a moment. Continuing the multitudes who went before Jesus and those who followed, all of them began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So these are, they're responding to all the things that Jesus had been doing, had done. Specifically, what are they singing? What are they crying out? What are they praising? Well, we have the account. They were saying, Hosanna. To the son of David, which is a messianic title, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Quite a scene. Imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of people chanting all of this. As this is happening, we're told that some of the Pharisees, so these were the religious right, they had their own television network. They called to Jesus from the crowd. And they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, they understood what was being said, the messy nature of it all. They got it. But Jesus answered. He says, I, I tell you that if these, speaking of the crowd, should keep silent, the stones, now if you ever go to Israel, there's a lot of them. <laughs> there's a lot of rocks. Jesus says the stones would immediately cry out. And if you were rolling them, they're rolling stones that are, <laughs> that are also singing. So, so as he drew near, Jesus, and again, this is all in the scene. All in the scene. So they're still making their way. Bethany, Bethpage, they get to the top of the Mount of Olives. 
Jesus has to go down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron, up into the city. But we're told that as he draws near, Jesus sees the city. This is what happens. He begins to weep over it. And he says, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And from there, Jesus went into the city. And then he goes into the temple. So when he had looked around at all the things in the temple, the hour, we're told, was already late. So he goes out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I should give you a side note. And if we could turn this up, I think I'm going to need it. For those of you on the live stream, it is now storming here. You've got to pull that down because it's, it's uh, not EQ'd. I'll just speak louder. I can do that. So Jesus, he gets to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He looks around. Now for context, we're told it's late, so he leaves. Goes back to Bethany. The next morning he comes back because he stewed all night over what he had seen. So he comes back, and it's not like meek, mild Jesus. We're told he sits there steaming, and he weaves together a whip, and he drives out the money changers. So that's kind of the flow of all the things that are happening here. Now, in order to understand the reaction of the crowd to Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem, you need to keep in mind a context. And the context is that it is the week of Passover. So always keep that in mind as you're processing this week in order to understand it. In addition to the Feast of, of Pentecost, which would come 50 days later, early summer, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, which would come in the fall, those were... Uh, coupled with Passover, those were the three required feasts. This is the first of the three. It happens in the springtime. There's a nip to the air. Pollen, you know, making its way across the Temple Mount. For this particular week, always know that Jews from all over Rome, all over the empire, would make a pilgrimage. So after the long winter, they all come to Jerusalem and they're going to join in the celebration, Passover. According to first century historian, a man named Josephus, during this week, it's estimated that the population of the city and the surrounding towns would swell to more than three times the normal size. Some scholars estimate that the numbers would have reached as high as 2.7 million. There is a ton of people here in Jerusalem. People are packed in. And keep in mind, of the three feasts, Passover had really come to be, to be the most festive, the most patriotic, mainly because it was a celebration of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egyptian captivity, which had a relevance, right? Why? Because at the moment, the Jewish people were under the thumb of the Roman Empire, Roman occupation. Aside from this, Passover held a deeper, more practical religious connotation because it also provided the people a chance to make a sacrifice of atonement for sin. So that's why they were coming to the temple, to offer a sacrifice. Now, 
as you play this scene out in your mind, okay, all these things are, it's, it's likely raining in the moment, okay? It's not said that in any biblical narrative, but as we're playing out our scene, let's just roll with it. It's raining. The metal roof of the temple, you can hear the, the pinging. You get sleepy, but you should stay awake. The scene here, even apart from Jesus' involvement, like if this was just a normal Passover, apart from Jesus, I mean things are live. As the kids say, they were lit. Aside from being able to make an offering to God, again, Passover, it's patriotic, it's celebratory. You have this great multitude of people under the thumb of Rome. They're ascending to Jerusalem. They're coming as a community, as one, as a nation. They've got their friends with them and their families with them. They would be singing, we actually have records of it, what's known as the Halal Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118, some of the things they'd be singing, as well as what's known as the Psalms of the Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. Again, setting aside the current political climate, related to Jesus, though the feast of Passover was festive, always know there was an uneasiness, there's an anxiety just below the surface to it all because of the massive increase in population, the patriotic nature of the gathering, the ongoing rest in, in Judea. The Roman governor at the time, a man named Pontius Pilate, he feared unrest, chaos, a revolt happening during this week. I mean, all the conditions were there for it. Josephus also notes of the increase in Roman soldiers present for this week would be ten times the norm. Jerusalem, during Passover, was a powder keg. And all it needed was a spark. Another contributing factor to the growing excitement, the anxiety with regards to Passover, and particularly this Passover, was this news, unexpected news, by the way, that Jesus of Nazareth was actually coming to Jerusalem. And I say it's unexpected. One detail that kind of gets buried is a few weeks before this, we find record that the, the, the political establishment, the religious leaders, had actually issued an official formal warrant for Jesus' arrest. And because of this, most of the people just assumed that Jesus would likely be a no-show, that he wouldn't present himself publicly because there was a warrant. And yet the party grew even more exuberant when word started to arrive that Jesus was on his way. Now, now let's look at the two different reactions to Jesus' triumphal entry. First, as word quickly spread throughout the city that Jesus was making his way to celebrate Passover, John says, again, the crowds go out to meet him. The people, they admired his bravery, his tenacity, especially in the face of, of powerful enemies. I mean, Jesus risked arrest coming to the city. In a way, the crowd saw Jesus as, as thumbing his nose towards the establishment, the corrupt powers. As Jesus, his entourage, and this massive crowd of pilgrims crest the Mount of Olives, they make their way down the western slope, across the Kidron, and through the east gate. John says people start ripping down branches from palm trees. They're waving them in the air. People are lining the roads with their tunics. Anything they could find. I mean, this is a scene. And right from the bat, you should understand that the gesture of specifically the palm branch was the crowd's way of making a very stark statement. 
You see, going back to the Maccabean Revolution in 150 B.C., the palm branch had become a de facto symbol of Jewish patriotism. Waving a palm frond was the way the crowd would greet a revolutionary. There is no doubt the people were hailing Jesus as their king, coming to restore order. In addition to the dramatic effect of waving these palm branches and laying down clothes and fronds along his path, as noted by the other gospel authors, John says that this great multitude, they were crying out actively in the active tense, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. We're told they began to praise with a loud voice, the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they're repeating this. This is on repeat over and over and over. Not only are the crowds quoting from Psalms 118, which was messianic, this word Hosanna, again, the repetition of it is interesting. The word Hosanna literally means, means save now. That's what they're crying out. Which again, place that in the context of, of the scene. Jesus is making his way into the city. He's riding on a colt. And the people are not only hailing him as the king of Israel, but they're making an appeal using the word Hosanna for Jesus as their king to act now. It's as though they're saying, Jesus, you are our king. So save us. Let's do this. Act now. Comprehending what it was that the crowd was truly saying, their reaction to Jesus, and then the subsequent implications of what they were asking Him to do, you can kind of understand, right? You can at least relate to why the religious leaders, the, who are also the political establishment, why they're kind of troubled by the whole situation. I mean, this is not a good see, a good look. Like in the midst of the fanfare, they come to Jesus again from the crowd, and they're like, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Like, you've got to put an end to the commotion. Like, we got to stop doing what we're doing. You know, practically, the Jewish people have been given a measure of autonomy by the Romans to govern the people as they chose. But there is no question that the scene here of a mob publicly hailing Jesus as their king, begging him to save them, it would alarm an already trigger-happy Pontius Pilate. Like, this is not a good look. But note, at the heart of their request to rebuke his disciples was unbelief. You see, the religious leaders, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They probably knew, but they rejected still. And so they found the whole scene inappropriate. Jesus taking the attention, the claim, the title of a Messiah. Now, before we unpack what's really happening here, and specifically why it's significant, we should be honest that the whole episode is oddly out of character for Jesus. Like the whole thing, just as you read through the Gospels and you read the way that Jesus dealt with the crowds and how he handled attention and public acclaim, like this whole thing is just bizarre. Like it's a break from the norm, a break from protocol. Consider a time and time again. As you read through the life and ministry of Jesus, he would actively and repeatedly discourage public praise and adulation. I recall at the beginning of his ministry, Mark, the end of Mark chapter 1, when he heals a leper. What's Jesus' instructions? Go, go to the priest, present yourselves, but don't tell anyone. 
Like he healed a leper. And he's like, mum's the word. I mean, that was Jesus' reaction. Once more, once the warrant had been put out for his arrest, Jesus had retreated purposely from large crowds, hoping to avoid controversy. And yet in this instance, like that's, (coughs) that's the furthest thing from his reaction, isn't it? Here he is, making his way into the city. Palm Sunday. But something has changed. Like, not only is he doing nothing to stop the fanfare, but the case can be made that Jesus intentionally orchestrated the events of this day to bring attention to himself. Uh, Again, I'm adding details that you could pull out on your own study, but particularly in John's Gospel. Like, Jesus coordinated all of this, that he wanted to make sure he arrived in Jerusalem not one day before or one day after, but on this day, specifically five days before Passover. Jesus was very particular about it. Even delayed his coming. He went out of the way just to kill some time. Jesus wanted to show up on this day. And and not only that, but he he coordinates his own mode of, of transportation. Like, he gets his own Uber. Like, so why would Jesus just shift his public presentation from keeping it on the DL to now, like, this dramatic entry? Now, one clue as to why this day was so different from all the others can be found in three fascinating statements that Jesus would make as he journeys to the city. First, Jesus defined his arrival as being, quote, your day, which was a reference to the Jewish people that had gathered there. He calls it, this is your day, not my day, it's your day. And then he refuses to capitulate to the religious leader's request. He silenced the crowd, adding that if he were to do so, the the rocks would cry out. Again, odd, interesting. But then Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for not knowing, quote, the time of their visitation. All very interesting phrases. Now, I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole. We've been looking at a lot of prophecy in our study of the book of Daniel and then our study uh, more recently in the book of Revelation. But you do need to know, in order to understand what Jesus is referring to with these statements and why it's significant, to a prophetic word given to Daniel the prophet 600 years before this event, In Daniel 9, we call this vision the 70 weeks prophecy. I'm just going to give you a very cursory flyover. In the prophecy, God tells Daniel that he was setting aside 490 years to finish his dealings with Israel, his people. Aside from this, God in the prophecy explains to Daniel what those dealings would include, when the 490 years would start, what would happen at the 483rd year mark, when the final set of seven years would initiate, and what would happen to bring all of these things to a completion. Again, this is the 10,000-foot perspective of the 70 weeks prophecy. For our purposes this morning, please note that in the prophecy, God tells Daniel when these 490 years would begin, when the timeline would begin. He says it would begin with the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which was significant to Daniel because he's in Babylon, in exile, Jerusalem, the city, the temple has been destroyed. Now, as to the fulfillment of this, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that the Persian king, Artaxerxes, issues an official decree 
allowing the Jews to return to the land and rebuild the city, again, like the prophecy says. And we know the date. The date's given to us in the Bible as March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, working out from that date, God then tells Daniel that from the command to Messiah the Prince would be 483 years. Like, so what God is telling Daniel, what he's revealing to Daniel is that when you see this decree allowing the people to return and rebuild, extrapolate from that date 483 years, and you will have the exact moment, the day, Messiah the Prince will present himself to Israel. Now there's a lot of theories as to what the date ends up being, April 6, 32 AD, probably being the closest. It's hard to land on a specific date, mainly because the calendar changed a lot from the Babylonian time period through the Grecian Empire into the Romans. So it's hard to pinpoint an actual day. And yet, we do know that when Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for failing to know this was the day of their visitation, when He says this was your day, this is what He's referring to. You know, as the religious scholars, the Bible experts, these men, the religious establishment, should have known Daniel's prophecy. And therefore, they should have known that it was this day that the Messiah would present himself to Israel. So as they're standing there knowing, you know, something big's going to happen today. And then this all happens and they're like, no, can't be it. Like they're missing the moment because of a hardness of their hearts. But beyond that, you see, Jesus broke protocol of keeping it low key because this was not a day to be low key. This was the day of their visitation. And so for the first time, what does Jesus do? He accepts their praise, the praise of the masses, because he is officially presenting himself as Messiah the Prince, the King of Israel. This is why to the very suggestion that he tell the disciples to be quiet, he says it would be pointless, for even the rocks would cry out. You know, in addition to presenting himself to Israel as their king, there's another reason, as mentioned, why Jesus would orchestrate the events of this day the way that he did. You see, beyond the prophetic implications, it was important, for a reason you might not know, that Jesus specifically decided to enter the city, not just on the day, but in the way, riding on a donkey. It's noteworthy. You see, riding on a donkey, it was not demeaning. Now, there, there will be a day that Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, not on a donkey. He'll be riding a white horse. It's because he's picked a fight. <laughs> a fight he'll win. But in this instance, he's riding on a donkey. And it's not a demeaning thing. In actuality, when a king would return following a great battle, if he rode in on a stallion, it's letting the people know the fight's still going on. But when the battle was done, the victory had peace achieved, a king would ride on this docile animal. He would ride on a donkey. So there's some imagery to this, some significance. In a way, you could say that by riding on a donkey, Jesus was affirming the people's conclusions about himself. He was a triumphal king. But in light of this, their appeal for Jesus to save, it was also appropriate, right? The problem, though, is that no one really understood what it was Jesus had come to Jerusalem to triumph over. Yes, Jesus was coming as the King of Israel. Yes, He was coming as the Son of David. Yes, He was coming in triumph and victory. 
but they didn't understand what the victory would be for, what he had actually come to save the people from. The truth is that the evidence was all right in front of them, I mean illustrated in, in an incredible way, but they totally missed it. Like the fact that Jesus entered Jerusalem the Sunday before the Feast of Passover, riding on a donkey, would have presented a very strange visual. Might not be included as you've you played out the B-roll. You know, according to the law, pilgrims for this feast were to bring a lamb, right? It's, it's Passover, the Day of Atonement. They were to bring a lamb. And that lamb would be offered there at the temple as a sacrifice for atonement. Now, there was a lot of particular, uh, you know, details about the lamb itself. It had to be spotless. It had to be without blemish. Like, you couldn't bring the runt of the litter or the one that had broke its leg and you wouldn't sell it. Like, you had to bring a good, a good lamb. Now, the challenge, though, is ensuring the lamb made it through the journey, right? I mean, how do you keep a lamb spotless through such a, a, a difficult trek through wilderness? And again, the terrain around Jerusalem was very difficult to travel. Like, how do you keep the lamb spotless? Again, as you're playing the scene in your mind, okay, imagine it. You have Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives. He's making his way towards the city. Jesus is riding on a donkey. The mobs of people surrounding him, before him, after him, they're declaring him to be the king. They're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. You can picture the makeshift pathway of tunics and coats. you got the palm branches being waved in celebration. But there are two more elements to the scene you've got to imagine. First, while everyone is singing and dancing and worshiping God, while the masses are laughing and celebrating and cheering the arrival of their king, while the religious leaders are standing by scowling and seething. What's with Jesus? Because yes, he's sitting on this colt, but what's he doing? The Bible is very clear that he is weeping. So you have this strange paradox. People are cheering and it's a celebration. Jesus is the focal point, but he's bawling his eyes out. In Luke's account, he tells us that when Jesus saw the city, again from the Mount of Olives, he began to weep over it. And he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. You know, aside from the odd image of Jesus weeping while the crowds are cheering, it was on this day, five days before Passover, that the people had been instructed to bring their lambs to the temple. I told you that there were two components to this that Jesus specifically orchestrated. Not just did he ride on a donkey, but he made sure to come five days before Passover, because this was the day that the people would bring their lambs. They'd bring their lambs to the temple. They would present them to the priest. Over the next three days, the lambs would be inspected to ensure the sacrifice was spotless, blameless, innocent, pure, acceptable to God for sin. Please realize that as this scene is unfolding, with Jesus making his triumphal entry into the city, there are sheep everywhere. Like rats, they are everywhere. 
Josephus again provides us an insight in his annals that during Passover, roughly 256,500 lambs were brought to Jerusalem and sacrificed. And do you want to just take a gander, take a guess, at how these lambs that you had to keep spotless were typically transported to the city? Because the lamb had to be without blemish. Again, challenging. Jerusalem surrounded by tough terrain. It was completely normal, typical, as in fact expected, for young lambs to be transported in satchels carried by donkeys. In fact, I actually have a picture of this. That's what it would look like. Imagine that. Like as you, as you play out this, this scene you've heard for all these years. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. As you imagine the scene, there's another element you need to have in your mind. Jesus is not the only one riding a donkey. He just happens to be the only human being riding on a donkey. All around Jesus, as he's making his way into the city, and the people are waving their palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King. As all of this is happening, Jesus is on a donkey, and he's surrounded by lambs on donkeys all over the place. Lambs being brought to the temple for what purpose? To be sacrificed. You see, Jesus broke protocol this day, not only because he was presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah, a day long predicted by Daniel the prophet, but Jesus came on this Sunday, why? To present himself as the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus had not come to free the people from Rome. He had come to triumph over a greater foe called death. And in turn, to liberate all of humanity from the bondage of sin. Now again, according to the custom, not just with the physical lamb, but what would happen with Jesus? For the next three days, as you examine this week of passion, Jesus undergoes a, a very serious inspection. What's the point of the inspection? Well, before the, the, the sacrifice can be accepted, it has to be, the conclusion has to be reached. It's innocent. It's pure. It's spotless. Well, what would happen? Three days of inspection. How would it, how would it all conclude? Not just with the religious establishment, but then the Roman governor would repeat over and over, I find no fault in this man. They would concede his innocence. And yet, as the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple, and as a river of blood subsequently would flow out the eastern side of the temple into the Kidron Valley. Kidron means black. It's called that because it was blackened from the blood of the lamb. As these sacrifices are, are happening on Passover, we see Jesus hanging on a cross, dying as the spotless Lamb of God to atone for the sins of mankind. Like with this in mind, don't forget how Jesus' ministry started. Like, like the big proclamation. We know that Jesus had a forerunner, an advance man. You know, imagine the wedding. You know, you got the, the groomsman that comes in and makes the announcement, the arrival. Well, in Jesus' ministry, that was his cousin John, a guy named John the Baptist, or the baptizer. Don't want to offend the Methodists out there. 
So you have John the Baptist preparing the way. And and we're told, it's recorded in John 1 verse 29, that John sees Jesus coming towards him. And this is what he says. He says, behold, everyone stop what you're doing. Look there. Behold, consider, think about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Never forget that Jesus was the Lamb of God, not the Lamb of man. You see, Jesus was not a lamb that man, sinful man, would offer for himself. No, Jesus was the lamb that God would offer for sinful man. You know, as strange as it all might seem, never forget that the death of Jesus on the cross as the lamb of God had always been the plan. First mention of the word lamb in the scriptures you'll find in Genesis 22. It's a scene that foreshadows this one. Abraham and his son Isaac go to make a sacrifice. God had instructed Abraham to sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac. As they're making their way up a mountain in Moriah, which would be the very place Jerusalem would be built, Isaac kind of begins to look around and notice, I know we're going to make a sacrifice and all, that's cool pops, but uh, we got the wood, we got the fire, you got your trusted blade, but you know we don't have... We don't have an offering. He says, my father, look, the wood, the fire, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? First mention of lamb. So Abraham said, my son, God will provide. And then the translation into English says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. But that word, if you notice in your translation, for is italicized, meaning it's not there. It's a bad translation. It actually reads, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. You see, it was on this day, a day misunderstood, that God was doing the very thing that Abraham had predicted. You see, Jesus had come to Jerusalem, yes, as a triumphal king, but as the lamb of God. God had provided himself the lamb. You know, as we close our time together, in verse 16, again of John 12, the, the apostle makes an, an honest confession that I appreciate. Again, I'll repeat it. He says that the disciples, as, as all this is going on this day, he says, we didn't understand these things at first. Like, we kind of missed it all. Like, we didn't get it. But when Jesus was resurrected and glorified, we remembered these things. We had a different context. We understood. We got it. What a sad admission, though, that they all missed it. They missed the moment. They missed the day. Indeed, this was a day misunderstood. And we know this for one reason. Though the people rightly saw Jesus as their Messiah, tragically they misunderstood what he had come to Jerusalem to accomplish as their Messiah. Yes, save now was the appropriate appeal. But it was sin that Jesus had come to save them from. And not the tyranny of Rome. You know, if the people knew why Jesus had come to Jerusalem, if they knew that he had come to conquer sin, if they knew that in order to do so, Jesus was going to have to lay down his life on a cross as the ultimate sacrifice to be the triumphal king. You know, if the people understood the day, the moment, I have to imagine the atmosphere of that day would have been completely different, wouldn't it? While the streets would have still been filled with pilgrims. And yes, they would still be hailing Jesus as a king come to save, which was all true. 
if the people knew, I don't think there would have been all of the fanfare and celebration. Instead of waving palm branches, as I see the scene appropriately, I, I imagine everyone's on their knees with a somber reverence. You know, the irony is that Jesus was the only one weeping when it should have been the people if they knew what Jesus had come to do. Why did Jesus weep over the city? It's simple. Everyone present that day missed the moment. And Jesus knew judgment would result. As he predicted, in less than 40 years, the city of Jerusalem and the temple would be completely destroyed by the Romans. But on the flip side, I ask this question, why are tears appropriate from you and I on Palm Sunday? Again, I think it's simple. If you truly understand that on this day, Jesus was officially presenting himself as the Lamb of God, a Lamb to be judged for sin so that you might be saved, what other reaction is there but tears? You know, in Revelation 5 or 6, John describes this glorified heavenly Jesus as a lamb, as though he had been slain. You see, for all of eternity, Jesus will bear in his physical frame the effects of a work he initiated on this day. A day misunderstood by those present. The day he rode into town with all intention to lay down his life so that you and I might be saved for all of eternity. 